It is a cruel psychological phenomenon that victims of violence and abuse often believe they deserve it. I began to think that there was something about me that was making him do this. It was probably one of the most shameful experiences that I've ever had. Shame is not only a result of violence, it is also often the cause. I was not hesitant at all to hurt somebody if I felt slighted. You made me feel like you thought I was other. You thought I was less than. I'm shamed and I'm embarrassed and you're not going to get away with that. Speaking out about violence, despite the forces of silence and shame, is an essential ingredient for healing, both of individuals and of entire societies. As coming up from Safe Space Radio. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. On today's show, we'll be exploring the relationship between violence and shame and silence. Violence is the use of force to cause harm. That force can be physical or psychological. In fact, chronic emotional abuse in childhood is associated with worse long-term health outcomes than physical violence. I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. In my clinical work, I've seen the shame that results from being a victim of violence. Many survivors of violence struggle with feeling like a failure for their inability to prevent or stop the violence. They've internalized the message that they're bad, unlovable, weak, defective, or damaged goods. This is shame, and it makes us want to hide and keep secrets. It leads to silence and to feeling alone in our worst suffering. As we'll explore, violence not only causes shame and silence in the victim, it comes from silence, shame, and a feeling of being less than in the perpetrator. We'll also talk about how silent bystanding enables violence, especially the structural violence of racism. Until we address shame and silence, we will not be able to address the epidemic of violence in this country. As you'll notice, each of the forms of violence that we explore, racist police intimidation, child abuse, rape, physical assault, and the structural violence of racism are connected to a larger system of power which justifies the violence by blaming the victim or seeing them as inferior. Part of interrupting the cycle of violence is seeing it in this context, recognizing and naming the power imbalance behind it. Austin Green is a painter and the director of Art Center programs at DreamYard, an arts and social justice program in the Bronx. He told me about an encounter with the police he had when he was in college and how he felt his life was at stake if he dared to say a word. We were on the New Jersey Turnpike. We got pulled over. No real explanation as to why we were pulled over, but we were all made to get out of the vehicle and to stay on the side of the road. This police officer... One by one, he was like inches away from each of our faces and just like shouting in our faces with threatening language. Like, what are you going to do? Today will be your last day with all of this, you know, and hand on his holster. He was like so venomous and I could see the spit from his mouth showering my friend's face as this officer was like shouting at him inches away from his face. And when my friend went to step back, He had to step back and step up onto the curb. And when he stepped up, the officer saw that as such disrespect. And he took it as a threat. And he handcuffed my friend. They had a tow truck come and actually tow the car away. There was nothing wrong with the car. They said they had to inspect the car. The police towed the car and just left it abandoned in some parking lot. We'd committed no crime, we'd done nothing wrong, we did nothing to get pulled over other than being a car full of four young black men. It was probably one of the most shameful experiences that I've ever had. And I knew that I could not respond in the least or I probably wouldn't be here today. 
When someone uses their power to run roughshod over you and humiliate you, it is terribly shaming. Violence is dehumanizing. It's a way of treating a person like a thing, and it often leaves the victim feeling like a part of them has died, like something inside has shattered. It can be very hard for survivors to find the words to tell their story. It feels unspeakable, and it feels like it means something very bad about you. I call this traumatic silence. The ongoing silence not only allows the trauma to continue, the aloneness of the silence becomes a source of trauma in itself. Carl Russell kept the violence he suffered as a boy secret for decades. My mother's mother was dying. My brother invited this priest to come into our home to pray with my grandmother. It was a very impressive moment. We had never known anything liturgical. We had never known anything about the prayers that were prescribed in the Book of Common Prayer. And so when he had those things to use, it made a huge impact on us. He anointed her with oil, and I thought, this is amazing. And then I watched what my mother and father did in response to this, and they were blown away by this man. So he was like a hero. Oh, he was a hero indeed, and he started coming to the house on a regular basis. I watched my mother and father defer to him. He was very careful, very slow. It began with a kiss. When I was very sick, they called him to do what he had done for my grandmother. They trusted him implicitly, so he came upstairs. I was in my bedroom alone. He prayed with me, but then he bent over and kissed me on the lips. That was the first unusual feeling that I had. They call this grooming, you know, in the field where somebody who abuses children gradually establishes trust, establishes a so-called special relationship. I think he not only groomed me, but more importantly, he groomed my mother and father. He had them in a place of complete confidence. A consequence of grooming Carl's family was that Carl knew his own parents would never believe him if he told them what was happening. Most sexual abuse of children does not involve strangers, but rather close family friends or relatives who the parents trust. So then I was appointed an acolyte, and that's when the more difficult stuff began. I mean, this took place over a very long period of time. It was very patient. The move was made very gradually, and it got more and more explicit. This all unfolded in the context where you weren't able to talk about it at all. So this occurs in the vacuum of silence. That's right. Exactly. And the silence is protected by shame. I don't know at that age if I knew what shame was, but I knew this was secret. He kept saying, no one must ever know what we do here. That was like a mantra. Children who are victims of violence usually blame themselves. And when they can't tell anyone about it, there's no one to help them understand that it's not their fault. I began to think there was something about me that was making him do this. It's so complex, you know, and there's nobody to talk to. And so I drew all kinds of wrong conclusions Carl remembers the moment when he first heard that this had happened to other kids as well. It was decades later when the news of priests sexually abusing children made national headlines. I was preparing supper, and I was peeling potatoes, and they did a section on the breaking news of the Archdiocese of Boston and the sexual abuse of children. And the most interesting thing is there were no children being interviewed, but I began to hear a child weeping. And then I realized that I was weeping, that it was, that I was weeping. And then I heard my wife come in, and then she came over and kissed me on the neck and said, what's happening? I told her there's much more about me that you don't know. And she put her arms around me and said, go ahead and cry, we'll get through this. So I thought, I'm safe. So I began to tell her. And then little by little, this began to come up. But it took years before I was able to really begin to identify particulars. 
And I think this can be the norm, you know, and I think sometimes people feel very suspicious about stories that come out so many decades later. But I think it makes sense when something happens to you and you're so young and it's so yeah. hard to make sense of and there's so much threat around telling it. Absolutely. It's so much shame. In some respects, the greater damage done to me was not telling, was keeping the secret. I didn't get the therapy I should have gotten years and years and years and years ago. As a result, it affected my professional life, the way I dealt with people. It affected my marriage. I basically lied to my wife for 40 years. There are consequences to letting that secret lie there and do me damage from the inside out. The abuse was outside in, but when it gets in there, it begins to run things. At the age of 72, Carl filed a claim against his abuser and won a settlement. He also wrote a book called No Telling Allowed, Keeping Secrets That Hurt. Susan Bryson is a professor of philosophy at Dartmouth College. She's the author of the book Aftermath, Violence and the Remaking of the Self, about her recovery from rape in 1990. One of the effects of my assault was that I had terrible problems speaking. It's interesting, this happened in France, and I still have difficulty speaking French, which I was fluent in 20 years ago. So I'm concerned that if I don't just read the story that I will start stammering. So I'm going to just start by reading a couple of paragraphs from my book. Okay, on July 4th, 1990, at 10.30 in the morning, I went for a walk along a peaceful-looking country road in a village outside Grenoble, France. It was a gorgeous day. I sang to myself as I set out, stopping to pet a goat and pick a few wild strawberries along the way. About an hour and a half later, I was struggling to stay alive. I had been grabbed from behind, pulled into the bushes, beaten, and sexually assaulted. Feeling absolutely helpless and entirely at my assailant's mercy, I talked to him, calling him sir. He called me a whore and told me to shut up. Actually, I think I can describe the rest in my own voice rather than reading. After that, there were several more strangulation attempts, and I was hit by a rock. The only reason I survived was that I managed to play dead and waited until my assailant had gone out of earshot and was able to scramble up the ravine and get help. So much of your book is about what it is to tell such a story and what it is for someone to hear you telling it and all the difficulty that trauma survivors have in finding an empathic listener. And I'm struck at how often people feel like they have to keep their story they have to censor it. They have to make it brief or not too emotional or all the ways that people try to make their story palatable to be heard. Right. I thought so much in writing this book about all the reasons why it's hard for people to hear survivor stories, especially rape survivor stories. And I just feel very strongly that the problem is with society, with us as listeners. We need to learn how to listen. Events that we call unspeakable aren't really unspeakable. It's that they're very, very painful to listen to and to take in and to respond to appropriately. One of the things that you write about so powerfully in your book is the ways in which people encouraged you to forget. There were so many, and that's what really convinced me that I needed to write something and to speak out very publicly, because also the other rape survivors I spoke with had the same experience. Other people were either denying what had happened to them or diminishing the importance or saying it's time to buck up and move on, get over it. That both wasn't possible for us as survivors, but also wasn't desirable. Because to do that you know, on an individual basis would be to just continue to ignore this huge societal problem and continue to allow this to happen to other women. So I'm hearing that one of the reasons to not buck up and move on and forget is trying to work for change. Is there also more personal psychological reasons not to buck up in terms of healing, you know, the capacity to bear one's own experience, the capacity to be present? Yeah, I am persuaded that one does need to confront and work through 
the trauma, that it just doesn't work to try to push it aside and pretend that nothing happened. There was one woman in this rape survivor support group I went to. She had been raped 12 years before, and she hadn't sought help. She hadn't talked about it. She, 12 years later, was as traumatized as I was at six months after my assault. It became clear to me that the people who didn't face the trauma at all or followed this advice to just put it behind you, buck up, pretend nothing really happened, weren't really able to heal in the long run. And that at some point or other, they were going to have to make some time to deal with it. You quote in the book Milan Kundera from his book, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, saying, the struggle against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. Mm. So your refusal to forget in some ways is struggle against a certain kind of power. The reason why I felt it was so important not to forget was because of the reasons why other people wanted me to forget. The attorney general in Grenoble, where the trial took place, as I was leaving his office, he looked at me and said, when the trial is over, you must forget that this ever happened. I was just flabbergasted. At that moment, I realized I absolutely had to write about this because it wasn't something that just happened to me that I needed to just put behind me. It was something that I needed to bear witness to because it has happened to lots of other people. It was continuing to happen. I viewed it as part of a larger phenomenon, even as it was happening. And even after I was rescued and taken in an ambulance to the hospital, in the ambulance, thinking, if I survive this, it's going to change my life. I'm going to do something, whatever I can, to stop this happening to other women. Speech is something that occurs between people, so it's hard to find your voice in the absence of a listener. Good listening helps to invite your voice. We need to hear each other into speech. If you've been hurt or assaulted, it can be devastating to tell someone who blames you, minimizes your pain, or doesn't believe you. Our work is to become better listeners who see the courage it takes to break silence and affirm the goodness of the sufferer. Long-term studies show that disclosing to one person who believes you and supports you is protective from self-blame and shame. Research also shows that when you tell your story in the service of helping others, it can protect you from the effects of the trauma. Susan's fierce determination not to be silenced is fueled by her deep commitment to addressing violence against women and her recognition that this is a systemic problem that needs a systemic solution. Finding your voice helps with individual recovery, supporting other survivors, and building momentum to make larger scale change. Finding your voice benefits everyone. The forms of violence we've heard about so far, racist police intimidation, child abuse, and rape, are backed by hierarchies of power in which certain people are considered inferior to others and less believable, making violence against them more likely. After a short break, we'll explore how cultural ideals of masculinity contribute to shame in men, and how that shame can lead to perpetrating acts of violence. That's coming up after the break. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio. Today, we're exploring the way that violence tends towards silence and shame for all the parties involved. The victim who is shamed and silenced, the perpetrator whose violence is often triggered by shame, and the silent bystander who participates in violence by not speaking up about it. While, of course, perpetrators of violence aren't exclusively male, in this part of the show, we'll focus on how cultural ideals of masculinity as dominance can lead to violence in men. Violence is glorified in our culture, in sports, movies, 
music videos, pornography, video games, and the news. We give boys the message that men need to be tough and dominant, that women are inferior and exist for sex, and that men are entitled to control women. We shame boys into silence if they express qualities that we deem feminine, fear, need, sadness, or vulnerability. We teach boys to be ashamed of universal human feelings. The shaming and humiliation of boys is a form of gender violence that we rarely see named, and it sets the stage for more violence. Phil Walsh remembers the moment his father taught him to fight. My brother Marty would have been 11 at the time, and I was nine. He called us into the living room. He said, I'm going to teach you how to fight. It was just out of nowhere, no context. He got on his knees, and he wanted me to punch him right in the solar plexus, and he told me, you know, where that was, and then he showed me a soft spot right under the ribs, and I mean, I've thought about that moment just a million times in my life. It definitely, like, legitimated violence as an appropriate male thing. A lot of the ways that boys interact with each other are being physically violent with each other for fun. Whether it's giving each other charley horses, punching each other in the arm, flicking each other in the ear. Even as a boy, even as a full participant and instigator of a lot of that, it felt incongruous to me. It felt inconsistent with my internal, natural self. But it felt like part of a culture that I was trying to navigate and figure out. Phil says one of the rules of that culture is that fighting is a way to defend your honor. You are saying, I refuse to be taken advantage of or pushed around. I'm defending my own dignity and I'm not letting somebody else diminish me in any way, steal my dignity. I don't say that as a way of justifying it. I think that is the motive. It is like a perverse way of self-defense. So if I think about any time I've been in a fight, I have deep shame and pride. Shame because violence is a failure on every level. But pride because I've been taught and I have internalized the idea that sticking up for myself physically is power and is manly. I resent feeling that way, but I do. The first time I heard the phrase toxic masculinity, it was immediately clear what that meant. I see violence as a failure. It is ultimately a failure of your ability to interact and engage with another person in a way that honors them as somebody distinct and of equal value and dignity to me. And maybe it's a failure of your ability to honor your own dignity without having to resort to violence to affirm it. Definitely. I mean, I think the shame associated with violence is really because it is not the most powerful version of me, but it is the least powerful version of me that is acting out. It is the smallest, most fragile piece of me that's controlling my behavior and not the most powerful and strongest. So that's the lie that I'm telling myself in that moment. Phil's courage to acknowledge this really got my attention. Violence as an expression of the smallest, most fragile piece of someone who is attempting to gain status and power. On the outside, all you see is the assertion of power, which we glorify in this culture. How might things change if we understood violence as evidence of feelings of weakness in someone desperately seeking to command respect? When I started asking violent criminals, why they had killed or injured someone, I kept getting the same answer over and over again. It was because he disrespected me. Dr. Jim Gilligan worked as a psychiatrist in a maximum security prison for many years and is the author of several books, including Violence, Reflections on Our National Epidemic. Feeling disrespected was so central to the motivation of violence, Mafia done would kill people because they had disrespected them. Husbands would kill wives because they disrespected them. Parents sometimes killed children because they disrespected them. And that was what taught me that shame and humiliation, the feeling of being insulted, 
disrespected, dishonored, demeaned. That is a central motivation for violent behavior. Almost all of us, when we're insulted, and everybody is at one time or another, we have other means available, nonviolent means, by which to restore our self-esteem. We have some degree of education or a respected occupation or some standing in the community or at least with our family and friends. Violent criminals that I saw in the prison, almost all of them had none of that. They were often uneducated, illiterate, unemployed, often homeless, poverty-stricken, had suffered an amazing degree of child abuse. They belonged to demographic groups, ethnic groups, that had been subjected collectively to systematic shaming and being treated as inferior and worthless. They didn't have nonviolent means available to restore their self-esteem. One of the most amazing things I discovered in the Massachusetts prisons was we did a study one year to find out what program had been most effective in preventing recidivism or reoffending when violent criminals left the prison. We found one program that had been 100% successful, and that was getting a college degree while in prison. We had a program there that cost the inmates nothing, and it cost the state nothing. Boston University professors donated their time to teach college credit courses. The inmates who got a college degree, who had several hundred, did not return to prison for a new crime over a 25-year period. A stunning result. My interpretation of that is education is the clearest, most direct way to maintaining a sense of pride and self-respect that can strengthen you against experiences of being shamed or humiliated by others. You can respect yourself no matter how others treat you. Bobby Paisant is serving 23 years for assault at the Maximum Security Prison in Maine. He confirms what Dr. Gilligan says about violence being triggered by feeling disrespected. I remember this incident where this guy, who was a friend of my sister's, he says, yeah, you think you're so tough, you think you're about something, you're not about nothing. I remember just going from zero to 100, and I, I assaulted him. And there's a lot of occasions like that. The ability to just switch it off. The idea of someone else is valid as a human being. I want to highlight what Bobby just said, because in my clinical experience, survivors of violence can feel that the perpetrator doesn't see them as a human being. Many carry a deep sense of failure and helplessness for being unable to communicate their humanity to the perpetrator. They feel like, surely he would have stopped if he could have just seen me, that I was suffering. Dehumanization is central to the experience of violence. Acts of violence require the perpetrator to see the victim as inferior. And as we've heard, these acts are often triggered by the perpetrator himself feeling degraded. I was not hesitant at all to hurt somebody if I in any way felt slighted. You made me feel like you thought I was other. You thought I was less than. I'm shamed and I'm embarrassed and you're not going to get away with that. Do you think there's like a really young or vulnerable part of you that when you get insulted like that, gets so angry because you're afraid that it's true about you? Always. I think that I've lived my entire life with self-doubt. A lot of my violence and learning how to fight and Having an image has been to gain acceptance from other people, to fulfill this need of validation from other people. Bobby completed his college degree in prison. While that gave him an enormous sense of accomplishment, it was something else that gave Bobby the life-changing self-respect Dr. Gilligan spoke about. The good things in my life started after I got involved in hospice and I had the opportunity to help care for men that were dying. People with life sentences die in prison. Bobby became a hospice volunteer and was trained to offer end-of-life care to fellow inmates. A few years ago, I spent the day with the hospice team at the prison. I saw firsthand the thoughtful and deeply respectful way they cared for their dying brothers. It starts with just that feeling of wanting to relieve somebody of their suffering, even if a little bit, and take that on myself. The ability to be present for another human being and see them in their totality, 
and see them as equal as myself, that I'm no better, I'm no worse, we're all the same. And that at some point in life, that's where I'm going to be. I can't run away from that. I learned that caring isn't an emotional feeling, it's an action. If I care about somebody, if I care about their plight, then I have to invest my time and my energy. Helping people die in a humane and compassionate way, I learned that I had valid skills. I was of service to other people and that I had valuable resources to offer the world. It's helped me to develop an appreciation and a love for myself that's not based on what's coming from the outside, but on what's on my inside. It's me responding to what's inside of me rather than the affirmation that I've always been looking for from without. So helping people become caretakers could really be a helpful violence prevention strategy. Right, no, absolutely. And when people leave in prison, see themselves as that, I think it gives them a sense of responsibility and a sense of self-worth that's very valid and that can go a long way. We've talked about the experience of shame and silence in the victims and perpetrators of violence. In the last part of the show, we'll turn our attention to the shame and silence of the bystander, particularly the bystander's role in the systemic violence of racism. That's coming up after the break. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio. We're going to turn now to the silent bystander, the one who witnesses violence or its aftermath, but does not intervene or speak up. There have been silent bystanders to all of the experiences of violence we've explored so far. People who have not noticed, not asked, not listened, not believed, or not intervened. Bystander silence is dangerous because one of the biggest contributors to violence is the perpetrator knowing that they can get away with it. For this part of the show, we're going to focus on anti-Black racism specifically, and how white people participate in maintaining structures, policies, and systems that treat Black people as second-class citizens in education, healthcare, banking, housing, and criminal justice, in ways that cause life-changing harm. This is what is called structural violence. The murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others have brought police brutality to national public awareness. But the structural violence that underlies police brutality remains relatively obscured for the people who don't experience it. We began this show with Austin's story of police assault because these experiences of individual violence are connected to a larger system of racism that supports and causes it. White people may know that structural violence exists, but because of ongoing segregation, still today most white people live in predominantly white neighborhoods, many white people have little personal exposure to the racism that people of color live with every day. It's not merely a matter of homogeneity with respect to pigmentation, the same coloration of neighbors, but a segregation in terms of class, a segregation in terms of education, a segregation in terms of job opportunities, a segregation in terms of economic horizons. This is Cornell Brooks, former president and CEO of the NAACP, and now a professor at Harvard. He's also a civil rights attorney who has fought and won landmark cases over housing segregation. Blacks, Latinos, people of color were routinely charged higher rents so that they might not rent in this apartment building. They were routinely told that there were no vacancies when they were, in fact, a surplus of vacancies. Those people, having tried to rent an apartment in a good neighborhood, 
were forced to stay in bad neighborhoods and neighborhoods where the schools were not as good and neighborhoods where the access to jobs were not as plentiful, where the crime rate was higher. So in other words, discrimination forced people to live in cages, if you will, of heightened structural and physical violence. Segregation and lack of exposure contribute to white bystander silence, but white lack of willingness to know more, to notice the signs of racism, and to engage is part of ongoing structural violence against black people. One example of how this plays out can be seen in the education system. Because of the legacy of slavery and of multiple government policies and benefits that were denied to black people, including the GI Bill and loans from the Federal Housing Administration, People of color make up a disproportionate number of the families living in poor neighborhoods. We as a country decided that funding for public schools should be based on local property taxes. So effectively, white people, as the majority with more power and wealth, decided that it was okay for black kids who live in poor neighborhoods to receive an education that's less good than white children's. Meanwhile, white parents with money benefit from living in school districts that receive plenty of funding funding that's not available in poor districts. So white bystander silence is partly the result of a lack of direct personal contact with the daily impact of racism, and partly because white people benefit from policies, laws, and practices which discriminate against black Americans. Daryl Ford is a violence prevention educator. He leads trainings around the world with professional sports teams and the U.S. military to reduce gender and race-based violence, and to improve individual and systems capacity for bystander intervention. Daryl also says that white bystanders remain silent because they benefit from structural racism. There's a quote from the writer Upton Sinclair, it's hard to get a man to understand a concept for which his paycheck depends on him not understanding. In other words, it's hard to recognize violence when it's in your best interest not to recognize it. Yeah, I think people are invested in not wanting to feel a sense of accountability for their participation in an unjust or racist system or a system they benefit from. What Daryl said there really struck me. White people not only stay silent about structural racism because they benefit from it, They also stay silent because they don't want to admit to themselves that they participate in and benefit from racism. In other words, along with powerful economic, social, and psychological incentives, white silence is partly held in place by shame. Shame prevents white people from wanting to really learn about racism and the way that racist ideas about black people continue to be used to exploit them. As a white person, I feel ashamed to say that it was only recently that I learned that the 13th Amendment, which bans slavery, has an exception written into it, allowing for ongoing slavery, i.e. forced unpaid labor, for anyone who commits a crime. Ever since emancipation, black people have been portrayed as criminals, increasing the likelihood that they will be treated with suspicion and arrested by the police. Today, one-third of all black men get arrested and many are denied the right to vote as a result. Not only that, but increasingly prisons are being run by for-profit companies who benefit from this unpaid labor. White bystander silencing of our history and current practices allows racism to persist. Shame makes it difficult for white people to accept responsibility for racism, or even to really notice and think about it. So instead... They figure out a way to blame the victim pointing the finger at the shortcomings of Black America. If things are happening in our lives that are negative, it's about the poor decisions that we make. Blaming the victim shapes an ongoing sense of superiority to the victim. This is what is meant by white supremacy. As Daryl says, I think white America has an investment in having a status that's greater than that of Black people and other people of color. I have a Deep belief in people's investment in status. Blaming the victims of structural violence involves turning a deaf ear to the victim's experience. When you feel superior to someone, you are not really listening. Like the other forms of violence we heard about in the beginning of the show, racism silences people of color who grow up without any faith that their voices will be listened to. 
when there are armed representatives of the state that descend on your community and you understand they're not here to protect you. They're here to protect somebody else's property from you. When those same people are in your schools, when you live in a neighborhood, there are liquor stores on every corner, payday loan shops, pawn shops, bail bondsmen. You've got military recruiters knocking on your door and camped out in your school, ready for you before you even graduate. Your school where the books are falling apart, the buildings are falling apart. And those neighborhoods were constructed intentionally through public policy over decades. When you know there are other people that can make a difference, but they tolerate this injustice for you anyway, you understand you live in a place that quite fundamentally doesn't care for you, that in fact despises you. You can feel it, that you're despised. It is hard to have faith in that system. It's hard to have any faith in the power that your voice can have. Being Black in America is to live a legacy of trying every which way to express your disenfranchisement, your pain, and your suffering. Our want for a better, more equal system in this country is to live a legacy of not ever having those expressions respected in any material way. So disrespect, dehumanization, and abuse beget more silence. Yes, and I believe we could go to a different place if we deign to listen to the voices of Black America, to the voices right now of some of the youngest people in this country, to voices who have been calling for the type of systemic change that this country has been resistant to, then we can change the lived experience of Black people and, and everyone. We could change how we take care of each other for the better. Listening to the voices of Black America Taking them seriously and acting on their calls for change is desperately needed. But there is a long-standing pattern of bystander forgetting in this country, such that even when racist violence is acknowledged, it does not lead to change. The forgetting and the failure to have sustained attention in this country is a big part of the problem. Martha Minow is a white woman and was the second female dean of Harvard Law School. She studies collective ways that countries and communities have worked to name, address, and heal from large-scale violence. You know, I'm reminded very much of the closing paragraph of the Kerner Commission report created over 50 years ago to address what was called at the time race riots, racial unrest. Dr. Kenneth Clark, who was the great social scientist whose work had been relied on by the Supreme Court in its school desegregation decision, Brown versus Board of Education, he testified and his quote ends the report and I'll read it to you. He says, read the report of the 1919 riot in Chicago. It is as if I were reading the report of the investigating committee on the Harlem riot of 35 the report of the Investigating Committee of the Harlem Riot of 43, the report of the McCone Commission on the Watts Riot. I must again in candor say to you, members of this commission, it is a kind of Alice in Wonderland with the same moving picture re-shown over and over again, the same analysis, the same recommendations, and the same inaction. We need to say that now because the recommendations of the Kerner Commission, not one of them, was implemented over 50 years ago. The depth of silencing is profound. Forgetting is a form of erasure, reflecting the unwillingness of those in power to make changes. Like the official in France who urged Susan Bryson to forget the rape, we as a society do not want to face the reality and the pain of our past and the way it persists in the present. So white bystander silence is the result of several forces, including segregation and lack of white exposure to the lived experience of black people, powerful investment in a system that white people benefit from, shame that makes white people avoid the subject because we don't want to feel like we're bad, a culture that blames the victim, an investment in feeling superior, institutional forgetting of both our history and our plans for change, and lastly, a lack of knowing what to say or do about it that will be effective. As psychiatrist and author Judy Herman writes, remembering and telling the truth about terrible events are prerequisites both for the restoration of the social order 
and for the healing of individual victims. One way to stop the pattern of forgetting is to have a formal national-level reckoning with racism. But how can we do this in a way that leads to change and not just more forgetting? The Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa has been recreated in many countries as a way to publicly acknowledge wrongdoing. While confronting terrible human rights violations is painful, in South Africa it did allow for a peaceful transition from a minority white apartheid government to a majority African government, something that few thought could ever be possible without bloodshed. The process allows victims to speak about their experiences, perpetrators to acknowledge their crimes for the sake of healing, not punishment, and for bystanders to become active witnesses who support transformation. I reached out to Ibrahim Rasul, former ambassador to the United States from South Africa. As a young man, he was a leader and activist involved in the anti-apartheid movement and was imprisoned with Nelson Mandela. I asked him about what we in the United States could learn about the process of truth and reconciliation from the South African experience. I think that South Africa has much to teach, both by the things we got right, but also by the things we omitted to do. I think we did the right thing by having a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, because we needed to face the perpetrators the day after liberation. There was nowhere else for them to go. And so we needed a trade-off. If they told us the truth of what they had done to us, we would reconcile with them and even in a legal sense give them amnesty, because the truth was more important than a narrow sense of justice that they should be jailed, that they should be punished. Because if we did not exchange a truth, we would not be able to look each other in the eye the day after liberation. We needed to coexist. And so that was, on the one side, things we got right. I think what we omitted sometimes was that we often paid more attention to the bodily wounds than we did to the psychological wounds. That we bought into the myth that we were strong enough to withstand anything. But we all knew that inside, we were all traumatized. I asked Ambassador Rasul how he had worked to help people heal from the psychological trauma of racist violence under apartheid. He explained that as they wrote the new constitution for the country, their motto was, when in doubt, include. For example, they designated 11 official languages for the country as a way to honor and include all the groups of people who live there. Inclusion has its own dignity, and dignity has its own humanization or rehumanization. And then life becomes manageable because you may not have all the material resources, but there is something fundamental about feeling human again. Perhaps there is an additional lesson we could learn from the South African TRC, that the deliberate and systemic inequality in the distribution of material resources does need to be included in the conversation. Structural racism in education, housing, banking, criminal justice, and healthcare must be recognized as forms of violence that need to be addressed as well. I believe it is time for a truth and reconciliation process here in the United States, for a reckoning with the human cost of racism in both the past and the present. It needs to include the voices of victims, perpetrators, and bystanders who bear witness to the profound and devastating toll of structural violence as well as individual acts of racist violence, like police brutality. But we have to give it teeth. It needs to be broadcast on a national level to change the national conversation. It needs to hold national attention and be taught in schools everywhere. It needs to be attended by our representatives and senators. In Canada, when they had a national truth and reconciliation process with First Nations peoples, they offered reparations from the outset as a way to demonstrate good faith. Perhaps here in the U.S. we could build into the process a plan for what law professor Martha Minow calls structural reparations. With reparations, the immediate assumption is that the solution is monetary payments to individuals. But I actually think that if the harm of racism in this country is structural, then the solution needs to be structural as well. Reparations can take the form of money, but 
also structural changes, also legal reforms, also cultural investments. There has to be oversight over the police and civilian panels with authority to remove offenders in the police force. If we systematically look at all the gatekeeping devices in the society, we're going to see much, much more systemic racism. Not only do we need to have a national process to acknowledge the violence of racism, we need to make sure this acknowledgement and the plans to address it aren't forgotten or erased. There needs to be an agreement up front that structural changes will follow. It will be up to all of us to ensure that this happens. In order to recover from and prevent future violence, both as individuals and as a society, we need each other. We need each other to notice, to ask questions, to listen, to acknowledge, to believe, to care, to speak up, to intervene, and to make it right. As author Matthew Sanford once said, violence, even individual violence, always happens to a community and needs to heal in community. If you would like to join me in making changes to reduce your participation in violence, visit us at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to my full interviews with Jim Gilligan, Martha Minow, Ibrahim Rasul, and Cornell Brooks. You can also find resources for how to address violence in your community. And give us your feedback about the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to stay connected to us and follow us at Facebook and Twitter at Safe Space Radio. Many thanks to our senior producer, Mary Quintus, assistant producer, Sophia McNulty, program director and editor, Dana Glass, advisors, Daryl Fort, Lane Gregory, Lucky Hollander, and Jana Smith, and editorial advisor, Jim Russell. Thanks to our production advisors from two organizations in the Bronx, DreamYard, an arts and social justice program, and Here to Hear, an equity and career pathways program. They include Idalis Jorge, Jade and Tien, Lucky Islam, Isauri Espinal, Emilia Danso, Naja Holmes, Isaac Toribio, Wilfred Camilo, Francis Mejia, Mariatu Saho, Joshua Poyer, and Austin Green. Special thanks to all our donors and to the Pinkerton Foundation who made this show possible. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward. Thanks for listening. Thank you.